anything important, I hear from my wife. So I, I can finally have that thing where, you know, Facebook doesn't infiltrate my mind with cat pictures anymore. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 31 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have Jameson Dance. Howdy doody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Benjamin Lupton. Uh, Hello! He's the author of History.js, and why don't you introduce yourself? Because that's all, all uh, I really know about you, other than History.js and your, your many time zones away. <laughs> um, yep, so I've been doing JavaScript pretty much like my entire life, and been doing it professionally since about 2006 full-time. And over the time, I've developed a lot of open source projects. And one of them became quite popular a few years ago, and that was History.js. It makes HTML5, um, History API, backwards compatible with like hashes and things like that. We'll go into that later. Um, but yeah, that became really popular, and now I do other stuff with Node a lot as well. So. Ooh, a front-end and a back-end person. Only because of Node. Yeah. You're basically like a unicorn. Yeah, a rare and mystical creature. You're you're too well rounded. You're going to put us to shame. Well, it's easy to be with Node. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Where do you work? Um, so I work for my own company right now. We've been doing um, JavaScript consultancy for a few startups in Australia, um, and now I'm looking at just going completely full time with just the open source stuff. Oh, cool. How do you manage going full time open source? Right now we've got yeah. Right now we've got premium support um, going with a few companies, and we're looking into other options as well. Right. Yeah. I, I, it. I'm in the same boat with my podcasts. I'd I'd love to go full time. You know, podcast and and less full time consulting. And so the real question is, if I pay you enough money. Will you put a gigantic ASCII art picture of my face in the history.js source code? Perhaps. Okay. Ooh. We'll have to talk after. I'm going to have to figure out how to do that. Let's see. Image to ASCII art. In podcast. Yeah. And then I'll. Oh, Chuck, you could do it so their, their face shows up in like the waveforms of the sound. Sweet. <laughs> I don't know about that. But no uh, one would know then. It would be perfect. Oh, it's true. Yeah. Anyway, um, so why don't we talk a little bit about uh, history.js? And and I was saying in the pre-call, I was looking at it and I'm like, okay, this this is either super simple and I totally don't get it, or it you know the, there's something I'm missing here. And it turned out that they were both true. Just just reading through the GitHub explanation of what it does. But if you you had a link somewhere in there to a Mozilla article about the HTML5 specification on window.history, and it gives you the the whole spiel on push state, pop pop state, and uh, what is it, update state? or Yeah, push state. state and pop state. 
Right. And then replace state. That's the one I'm trying to think of. And, uh, and so I, I read that and, and then it made a lot more sense. And there, the, it seems like there are a lot of powerful things you can do about it. Well, I, I was not as good as you, Chuck, and I have not done enough preparation for this episode. So can you talk a little bit about what the history API gives you? So, cause it seems like that's kind of a precursor to why history JS is cool, right? Yeah, definitely. So what happened? Do you all know about the hash bang then? The hash bang? Nope. Nothing besides what it is. You mean in the URL? Yep, the hash and then the exclamation mark. Twitter used it and it stopped working like for a while. Like everyone was just like, oh my god, Twitter, why are you doing this? And I think Lifehacker did it as well. Yeah, there are a bunch of them out there that do that. Um, I think some of the uh, JavaScript frameworks use it for different things. So you can do like hash bang, whatever, whatever for like, I don't remember if Backbone is just a hash or if it's hash bang, but anyway, a lot of them seem to have something like that in there. Yep. So the reason I ask that is like, as soon as you start going into like Ajax stuff, well, like probably around maybe 2006 when like jQuery was like in its boom, everyone started doing Ajax and they started filling with Ajax and then SEO died because search engines couldn't crawl the Ajax websites. And then out of that, the other problem then was as well, the back buttons died. Because if you're doing an Ajax web application, the URL doesn't change. So that was a big problem. So then what people did was they put hashes in the URL. So then suddenly we could do the little anchor hack. It was like a kind of a hack. And so you change your page, we update the little anchor, so the hash in the URL. Oh, because the back things. button will still work with that and you can still like bookmark that and stuff. Is that what you mean? Exactly. exactly. I remember doing that back in 1997 with GeoCities. Yep. So that, that hack's been around for like a very long time. But the problem with that is you still lose SEO. So then Google, there's also another problem, and that is if you refresh the page, you're not actually getting that the correct page initially, right? Because you'll get the little normal page, like the home page, and then it'll load in the correct page from the hash. Right. Is that still the case now, or is this a problem that they've solved? Yep, so that is what is solved by the HTML5 history API. So both problems, all of these problems, um, were solved very, very swiftly with the HTML5 history API. It's important to talk about the hash bang because they, they were kind of the series of steps that led up to that. So with the hash bang, they had the hashes and they were like, okay, we need SEO. So hash bang was created by Google. They were like, okay, how can we get SEO for these Ajax websites? And they made this really complicated routing thing. So if you do the hash, the bang, then like the actual URL you want, it'll redirect to like a proxy on your website to fetch the content that the search engine can actually want. So it was a lot of effort to set that up. So the HTML5 history API actually allows you to change the URL directly. So now you don't need to use the hashes anymore and it works with the back and forward buttons. It's just like, you know, you're actually changing the page, but you can just change the URL. Mm-hmm. But so, the so, problem- so the hash bang, if, if, if I can just summarize, cause I'm, I'm not completely sure I follow it. It treats it more like a path and less like a, an anchor on the page. Yeah. So the, they both treat them as paths. They both treat them because you handle all of this. Um, oh, okay. because all you do is you put the 
and then whatever after it is how you handle it. That's application specific. So that's so, kind of a convention, right? It's not like built into browsers or anything. That's correct. That was a few like it was all of us just trying to think. Okay, how can we accomplish this with the limitations we have and the uh, options we have available to us? So from there, um, yes, the HSMAR five history API then allows you to modify that URL. And with the events and everything you need to be able to get SEO because you've got the correct URL to be able to get the back and forward going and to be able to have the correct page initially because you're just sharing the original URL. But the problem then became, okay, but only HTML5 browsers support this. Right. So That would be so a problem. Then, yes, it is. So then the other option was, okay, we have to have hashes. Or, or like pretty much the what people did then was then they just used well, actually, it was too early to just use the HTML5 history API then. Now, a few people do that, they'll use it, but it's a bit of a problem. So that's where HistoryJS comes in. What it does is it will use the HTML5 history API, but if you're on a HTML4 browser, it will go back to using hashes for you. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that your URLs will look different in different browsers? Like, would I not be able to share a link with someone if I'm in a modern browser and they're not? Yep, so the URLs will look different. In HTML4 browsers, you get the hash. In the HTML5 browsers, you'll just get that URL you'll expect. Now, where HistoryJS really got popular was that it is able to handle that very gracefully. So if someone gives you a URL with a hash, so like someone, say someone is using Internet Explorer and they copy that URL and they send it to a HTML5 browser, right? Then that will convert automatically into the HTML5 equivalent. Oh, okay. That makes right. sense. So you can upgrade, but you can't downgrade. Is that correct? Well, it downgrades automatically because for HTML5 browsers, you're just sharing the normal URL. Right. And then it, I, I, I looked at it and it had a little bit different format for, for the HTML4 cap only capable browsers, so the older browsers. Yeah. The one thing that I really liked about the the API is that it not only allowed you to put in it not only allowed you to put in the the hash and things like that but it also gave you a javascript object that you can put in at the same time to to maintain the state uh, or the history over time yeah so that's that's a feature that was part of the normal HTML5 history API so the other problem with maintaining states in your web application. So essentially every single page is just a state and the web has never really had states before. Um, so what that data, which you're talking about is, yeah, you can attach a certain JavaScript object to a particular state. So that could be like, okay, the username and pass, okay, that's probably a very bad example. You don't want your username and password in there, <laughs> but just, um, just information related to that particular page, so maybe which step you are in on a particular form or something like that. Right. So if there's some kind of, if there is some kind of access details, or one thing that I thought was interesting was even if you have like different data that need to be displayed um, in different states, then you can store it in there in a in basically in the history. Yeah. 
And so, so essentially then like if you wanted to browse from one, one user's page to another, let's say you could just store all the user's data up in the state. And then if they hit back or, or back out anywhere, then it'll just load, it'll load that state because you're, you're backing up by saved state, um, by saved state instead of by page by page. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it looks like Joe's trying to join. Um, let me bring him in here real quick. I'll stall by thinking of questions. So it seems like this is a thing. Is this being used by any frameworks to help with their routing layer? Because it seems like, I mean, it, it, lots of frameworks have URL-based routing for what code they load and what views they show and stuff. And this would be a really easy way to provide easy, compatible URLs for those. Um, is that something that's happening a lot? Yep, so a few people use it with Backbone um, that I know of. The Generally, the frameworks tend to want to be like as lightweight as possible, um, and they don't want to go a particular um, direction because HistoryJS does force you into a particular way of doing things, and you may not always want that capabilities of HistoryJS. So if a framework was to adopt it, you know, a lot less people would be... Well, you would then have a split. You would have the people that are satisfied with that decision. You would have the people who are not. But it's very easy just to include in any framework you use. So that is generally just they take the option of if you want it, just include it. It's very easy to do. Right. So if if you are using something else that does have a routing engine to it, then how, how do you override HistoryJS's version of it? Or can you? How do you? How do you use HistoryJS with, yeah, with that like, framework? Yeah, so say you're using um, Backbone.js and HistoryJS and you want to use the history's routing instead of Backbone's or vice versa. Will one, will one always override the other? Yeah, so they will not be compatible because Backbone provides a router um, inside it by default. It's very basic. So... If you were to use HistoryJS in that, you would just write your own router for that, which would just use the HistoryJS API instead. The APIs are very similar to the native right. APIs, um, but there is a change that is a bit controversial in HistoryJS in that when you push a state, um, pop state fires immediately, or our state change event will fire immediately rather than pushing a state and then it not causing pop state. Right. Wait, can you explain that one more time? What's the controversial right. decision? Yeah. So the HTML5 history API works by you do a push state that'll add that state to your application's history. Sure. Um, and when you do the back button, what that will do is it'll then trigger pop state. So, okay, this state has now been popped. Here's the state details. And that's, now, that's totally separate from the URL changing, right? Push date changes the URL. Oh, okay. um, pop state will fire when that URL changes. When the oh, okay. user causes that, that URL to change. Okay, that makes sense. So what HistoryJS does is I was like developing Ajax applications for like a long time. And I looked at that and I was just like, this is a bit odd. Um, because generally the way I've always done it is that whenever you push a state, your little router uh, will fire immediately. So, for instance, if I push the state, 
I will want that to go to like my router or my controller um, immediately, and then that would do the handling for my application. So, for instance, if I push this page, like, you know, let's push to the About Me page. Now, that should trigger the state change, and that should load the About Me page. When I found that if I had to do this in two separate things, as a HTML5 history API suggests, then I had to do both calls. I had to say, okay, push that state and now load in the about me page. I found I was doing the same thing with more code. So we made it so whenever you push a state, it fires the state change event right away. Okay. That makes sense. Thanks for explaining that again. Yeah. It's, um, it's difficult to get your head around, um, at the start, which is why there's like a lot of articles written about it because it, it's a very, it's bringing a lot of structure to web applications, the way people traditionally use them. So it seems like it's not, I mean, it's, it doesn't seem like it's definitely not a framework, but it also imposes a lot of design. Dis, it, it decides a lot of things for you about the way you're going to build an application. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So it's definitely not a framework. It's more just like a, it's a polyfill. Um, but because of like the extent of what it's trying to cover, it, there has to be some compromise with it. Um, so those were with that compromise. Um, can I ask an off topic question? Sure. So you've been doing JavaScript, you said since 2006, and that's a lot longer than a lot of people have been doing JavaScript, especially since the explosion of Node and, and lots of other there's just been lots of new people coming into JavaScript. What do you think? Do you think that there's a big difference in the way that people are looking at solving these problems now? Like that, that people without long years of JavaScript experience are solving similar problems. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Can you rephrase that? I w- it seemed like a few questions in one. Yeah. It's probably because it's fuzzy in my head. It just seems like you've been around for a long time and, and have seen JavaScript change a lot, both the way people use it and the kinds of people that use JavaScript. What, I mean, do, do you do things differently because you've been doing JavaScript since 2006 or, or do you think that you've kind of kept up with best practices that have been evolving? Um, yeah. So I, I, I'll probably start with like a, just a little time frame that I see the, the way JavaScript community has changed. And like, you know, say around 2006, jQuery wasn't that big yet. People were still writing the custom JavaScript. Then jQuery came out and then suddenly everyone was like, oh, wow, you can actually accomplish things with JavaScript. I can actually use it to solve big problems or, you know, just add all those effects that I want to use and do all these things that, you know, without jQuery would be hundreds of lines of code. So after that, then, you know, in the last few years, web applications really took off like it was a big web 2.0 thing. And then suddenly Ajax was important. People started solving the more difficult problems. And that with the usability, like with the browsers and things like that, JavaScript moved from being that thing of just click handles for form submits and animations into actually being something that people can create really amazing applications with like entirely on the client side and things like that. Sure. So that was, that was one half of your question. That was like the timeline. Um, with whether or not people, what was the other part? 
So, I mean, you've been doing JavaScript for a lot longer than lots of people. Like, I've, I've come into JavaScript in the last few years, so the scene that I came into was at a much different state, and I've had much different experiences with it. Do you think that you do things differently because you've been doing it longer, or has it been kind of a consistent evolution of things getting better in JavaScript and, and, think, and you're keeping up with the best practices? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I, I think like the, definitely the people coming in now, um, you know, there's so much out there that like, I, I remember watching a previous episode on the, or listening to the previous one on the JavaScript community. He was saying that, yes, like right now there's so many, the JavaScript community is gigantic. And then you have the little tiny communities inside the JavaScript community. And there's people who say one thing about doing something. There's people who say another thing. Um, the the big difference I kind of find is the people coming into JavaScript now, um, they don't really know who to subscribe to. It, it, sorry, it's just like a fuzzy question. Yeah, it's fuzzy in my head too. That's okay. <laughs> so uh, I'm wondering... Uh, are, are there particular applications that you see for history JS? I mean, we talked about um, the HTML5 history state APIs, and we've talked about um, what they provide for you. But are there particular problems that history JS is specifically geared towards solving? Yeah. So whenever you want to change the page of your web application without the entire page reload. That's a time when you should be using at least the HTML5 history API. Um, so history.js just kind of makes that easier. So pretty much any time that you need a web application to change pages without causing entire page reload, then you would want to use history.js or something like it. Okay, cool. I'm also curious to know if you know of any sites out there on the web that are using History.js. Yeah, so the biggest one is 37Signals Basecamp. Oh, really? Um, yeah, they use it. Yeah, I'm an old Rails hound, so I find that interesting. Yeah, so they use it in the next, like the new version of it before. They didn't use it in the old version. And I, that's, that's a perfect example of when you would use it because for that, there is, there's not really a definition of a page in that application because as you go through that application, you're just changing a little part of the page, not changing the entire page. Right. But the URL will change with it because you have to have your back buttons and things like that and all of that stuff. So that makes me a little bit curious if, you have, let's say you go to a page and you, you know, you use it to change the state and you change the state to something that opens up or, you know, changes one small part of the page. And then you click on something else and it changes another small part of the page. If you go back to that same state, it's only going to change the second part of the page, not the first part of the page, unless you store all of that in the state. Is there, yeah. is there a good way to account for that, or do you just have to manually keep track of it? So having two different areas that can change that are independent of each other. Yeah. 
Yeah, so for that, that would be something you would definitely use that state data, which we were talking about before. So assign some data towards that state. Right, and then if people hit that URL directly, so if I try and share it with somebody else, obviously they won't have the state, so they'll only see the one change. If yeah, it's, that's If correct. it's tied together that way. Yeah. Now, this isn't really a limitation of the HTML5 history API. This is a limitation of web apps in general. Yes. Because URLs only point to one state. They only point to one page. So if you've got two independent states going on, it's not really tied to that one URL unless, of course, you then add identifiers to the URL, like the query string. So search pages is a good example of this. There could be lots going on on a search page. So you would just use um, a query string in your URL. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So you pass along the rest of the state in the query string and tell it what other what other parts to change. Yeah. So that's that's the way you would do it. You would because it, it kind of depends. It's like if you want people to be able to access that state from sharing URLs and things like that, then you would use the query string like we've always done. So search pages are a great example of that. If it's something like, okay, here's a panel that is unrelated to other areas, then, yeah, that's, or like, uh, yeah, any part of the state that you do not want to share, you would use the state data for that. Are, are there any other libraries that do kind of the same thing? Kind of. Um, they're, they're not doing it to, like, the extent that HTJS would do. Like, for instance, Backbone kind of has, like, a little fallback but they make no effort towards handling all the different browser bugs associated with stateful web applications. So that the different browsers, even the HTML5 browsers, handle the HTML5 history API in different ways. Right. And, and does, does history.js account for those differences cross-browser then? Yeah, so HistoryJS aims to be like the all-in-one like cross-browser solution for stateful web apps. Like we will try and fix like all the different browser bugs for it. So all you have to do is you can include it and then not have to worry about different browser bugs. Do you have like some uh, internal guidelines that you use when deciding what state changes to actually push into the history and what kinds of state changes not to bother with? I mean, obviously. If you're talking about major switches in your the state of your application that you want people to be able to bookmark, that's one. Um, but I find myself getting down to where there's times when, like, kind of what uh, I think it was Chuck was saying, you make a small change in a small part of the page, and you get tempted to put the, push that into uh, history. And so I was just kind of curious if you have any insight, uh, being that you're the expert here, on when to do that and when not to. Yeah. So for that situation, it's just, they try and think about the HTML5 history pair and like safe web applications as exactly the same as how you would do it without this stuff. Right. So anything that you would use the new page for traditionally, that should get its URL. Anything that you find can't justify like a new page reload with a traditional application should not get its own URL. I I find that to be far too simplistic. I mean, I've done ASP.NET when page reloads were something you did 85 million times. I mean, you practically animate an animation by just reloading the page over and over again. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> so there's tons of times when I reloaded the page 
And, you know, I've been certainly one of the worst offenders here. Tons of times I've reloaded the page that are times that just did not in any way, shape, or form deserve their own state, right? I mean, in back, if, heck, in, in the ASP.NET, you could, if you really didn't get it all into, there, there are controls on the client side were often very difficult to get to use the ones that actually did some AJAX or did some just client side rendering. And so you'd start changing the page for anything. And so that, that, that definitely, at least being an, I don't know if you've ever done .NET. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what I was, um, perhaps I wasn't clear. I was trying to say if you would do a, like a page reload, Mm -hmm. that should be then changed to a, you know, the HSMOP5 history API. You should push a state for that. Okay. But what if you're, what if you're doing a page reload, um, just in order to like, uh, I don't know, change the background color on something because of some, in, you know, small state that's going on. I've, I've, I've done that, you know, a small area of the, of the app and I change the background color and I do that in a reload just to change that background color. This is, you know, back when I was too dumb to learn JavaScript. You know, there's a global pool of page reloads and it's not unlimited. So you've done us a great disservice, Joe. You've used up a lot of them. I have. I have. And we're going to reach peak page reload, <laughs> and then no one will be able to refresh their browsers anymore. I have much to re- repent for. Uh, I, I'm making up for it now. I'm, I'm no more page reloads. Zero. <laughs> Gone the other way. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I would say changing, you know, causing a page reload to change the background color definitely does not justify um, a new state as it was, you know, as you were saying. That seems like something to be better handled by like a cookie or like say the session rather than an entire page reload. So, all right. So let, for people that haven't done your more traditional web application frameworks where you had to do page reloads before people started learning how to not do page reloads, they're not going to know. I mean, they aren't going to have the experience of, oh yeah, when I would do it this way, this is when I would reload the page. Now they're just coming to this fresh and they're writing single, you know, there are definitely people out there who've never not written a single page application. So how about this for a metric? If it would piss off the user, if they wanted to bookmark that state and they couldn't, then you should use the history. You should push it onto the state. So I like that metric that it's book, just bookmarkable stuff. But what about like, you know, being able to hit the back button to go back through and see state changes. Sometimes there's value in that, but you hit a state that isn't necessarily valuable to bookmark, but it is valuable to see if you're hitting the back button. That right? That's where history JS pays off because you can store the state in the history. Mm. You, you yeah, have to that, deliberately do it, but you can do it. Yeah. So for that, there's, so you would just push the, this is where the state data comes in. So you would just push the same URL you're currently on, but with the state data that says there's been a little change here. Oh, so they're separate, the URLs and the states that you're pushing on. Well, I mean, yes. you can push the same URL on with different state. Yeah, yeah. You, you need to go read that Mozilla uh, explanation because it really explains it well. Um, I'm just a stand-in for all the listeners that didn't read it, too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but basically, you you can push state onto the history and... It'll update the hash and stuff if you tell it to. And um, anyway, so then when you hit back, it it backs up through the state uh, stack instead of through the 
um, instead of through the URLs. Now, one thing that I'm a little curious about, when you pop state, does it remove that state from the stack? So can you go back forward again? Yeah, so yes, it, it you can still go back and forth. It, it pops it, but it doesn't pop it in the way we view popping an array. Okay. Um, so it still stays there. It's just essentially saying the state changed. Oh, I, I see that right here. I had another question tonight. Oh, the, the other question is, is, um, on the Mozilla article that, that you reference on your, on, the, in the readme, it also points out that, um, there's a limitation on the size that they will allow you to put into the state on that object that you store in the state. Which, which, yeah. which is the way that you store any data that you need to access in the state. Do other browsers have limitations like that? Yeah, so the, all, the different browsers all have very different ways of handling things. Um, one thing people run into a lot is that they will try and put, like, say, a jQuery element into the state data. But because that's a, a circular um, reference, then it all falls down because the state data is only for stuff that can be serialized. So generally a, a good practice is to just have like a global store of like data. And then for the state data, you just reference like a ID in part of this global store. So you can say, okay, let's now push the state, blah, right? And then you'll go, when the state changes, you go, okay, now fetch the data from blah in my global thing where I can store whatever the done, you know, I want. Right, so you back up, you get the old DOM, and then you have to re reinitialize things. Say, say, you know, if you were doing the little JavaScript program, you'd do like, okay, bar, you know, store equals blah, blah, blah. So just like have a global object called like my data store. And then when your state changes, you would just get the data from that global data store. And you, you would just associate an ID into that global data store. That's uh, the other way you would do it. Right, but what I'm saying is, let's say you have, you're using jQuery, you find an element, you put a click handler on it, things like that, you can't store that jQuery object in the, in the state, is what you were saying, right? In with the, the HSML5 history API state. Right. That's correct. You can't, but there, you can't. there's... So you store the, the ID in there, and then when you back up on the state, you have to set up that click handler all over again, right? Yes, you you would probably use live events in jQuery for that. Okay. Unless like live events come in for those who don't know, like live events um, in jQuery, they allow you to bind to a particular selector for any changes that happen to your page. So you could say, okay, do this selector for a jQuery um, element, but that element may not even exist yet and it will still work when that element actually comes to be. Um, so that would be great for things which are always present in your application. For things that are relating just to a particular page, yet you would just do it in that particular page handler. You could say, oh, for any JavaScript code just relating to that page, and yes, you would have to reinitialize um, that click event for that page. Yeah. So the other question I have then is, when you move through state and you're using jQuery, does it call on ready every time? No. No? That's only on the initial page load. Yeah. Okay, cool. Do you guys have any other questions? I do. I, do. I, I got like 40 of them. 
<laughs> no, no, I just got a couple. Um, <clears throat> I'm kind of curious. Uh, would you consider History JS to be a very uh, deep library that requires, you know, a fair amount to get into and implement, or would you consider it to be more of a shallow library, like you spend maybe an hour kind of figuring out, and then you pretty much just figured out everything that's that's there. Yeah, so HistoryJS is like the, the lowest of the low level. Um, the only thing more low level would be like interacting with the HTML5 history API like directly and the hashes. Um, so the goal, that was like a delivery goal. is just to be like, okay, I want to provide the most low level alternative to, to that API that can, you know, have all these cross-browser things solved. But there are things that, like, say, work with it to make it very appealing to people who don't want to learn about how to use the HTML5 history API. Right. Okay. So inside the readme, there's actually a link to, like, a snippet of code, like a GIST, that will make it so you can just drop in that GIST, you can drop in history.js, and then your entire web page will be updated to use the HTML5 history API with, like, the hash callback. So your entire website will be converted into using stateful, a way of doing things. So everything will load through Ajax, you'll get all the different things. But that only applies to, like, say, simple websites. You wouldn't want to put that on yahoo.com. Gotcha. So what if, if you're going to implement, if you decided to implement History.js, even though you've, you're using a third-party library that actually has its own routing, would you call that process of replacing an existing library's routing with History.js, would you call it simple, or is that often uh, a difficult thing that you might want to plan a reasonable amount of time to do? I would say it would be pretty simple. Cool. And then my last question, and I always ask this question, I'm like the guy for asking this question on every podcast, is if I want to learn History.js, what are the best resources for me to learn it? Yeah, so the History.js readme um, is a good resource. There's also a few articles on that wiki page that will go into more depth, which really is where people will click with it. Because the introduction of the state for web applications is a big learning curve. So you have to do up your reading about it. And there's some good resources on the wiki. Have you had to change history.js a lot uh, as browsers have come out with new versions? Or has it been pretty stable since the beginning? Um, yeah, it's definitely needed a few changes over time. Okay, I've got another question. i got to interrupt Joe's streak. So okay. I, I've used Backbone a lot, and the way you manage state with Backbone is in your models um, and some stuff to do with URLs. But it looks like History.js, if I'm understanding right, it gives you an easy way to manage some kind of global state that's linked pretty directly or can be linked pretty directly to a URL. So how does that interact with other frameworks that have other paradigms for keeping track of all the state in your application? Backbone... How, how, how do you store, do your stateful stuff with the models in Backbone? Yeah, that's typically what you do. You manage your data in state with your models. Yeah, so there's, there's an object graph of models that are just all loaded into memory that you load from a server sometime and you can manipulate them and save them back, but they're, they're kind of always in, in memory for the state you're in, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah. So for, that, it, that seems like a bit out of the scope of the HTML5 history API. The Backbone provides a router class, and that's where the HTML5 history API would come in. Right, but what what Jameson is pointing out is that if you 
if you have multiple states and your models change over the course of those states, then as you back up, your models aren't remaining consistent with the global state that they were in at that time. Um, it seems like one thing you could do is, if I remember right, Backbone provides you with an attributes object that is a property of your model, your model instance. And so you could, you should be able to serialize that and put it into the global state. And then from there, you would just have to, um, you, you'd have to do some finagling. And if you look at the readme, there's a, a bind for state change. And so um, when you pull the state out, then you would just uh, reinitialize those models so that they had the old, the old uh, data in them. But is that is that what you would do? You would store all the state of your application in the history state, I guess? Only if you care about what state it was in when that state was saved. Okay, that makes sense. So it's not like you would use it for every action the user did, but if there were some intermediate actions that you wanted to be able to back up, right. go for it through or something. Okay. Sweet. Sorry, I'm I'm totally the dunce on this podcast, but I'm not afraid of asking stupid questions. So <laughs> you have to bear with them. Hey, so there. the way I generally do it with the backbone apps is you'll have the the router and that'll control your pages. So your router will say, Okay, when we are this page, tell our say our application view to like start loading up this page and it was change sure. the view into that. So anything relating to the actual particular page, I would store in the view. That's the properties of the view. And the models are just used for things like users, tasks, things like that. So the model should stay the same um, across all the different pages. In my, at least I would think so. Yeah, I generally agree with you. Like if you're doing a to-do list or something, then that makes sense because, you know, even if your your state is changing the, the view itself, you want your data to be the consistent latest version. But if for some reason you needed some intermediary uh, state to be saved, then you could save the relevant pieces and then pull them out if you needed them. But I can't think of a good example of why you would want to do that. Yeah, so, correct, I, I agree with you there. So, anyway, um, we're just about to the point where we need to do picks. Are there any other questions you guys have? Nope. Nope. All right, well, then, let's let's do the picks. Um, Jameson, why don't you start us off? Okay, so I bike to work pretty often, and today I was biking to work and had a sweet crash that I ended up flipping over the handlebars and rolling around on my back on the concrete and stuff. And I landed on my Retina MacBook Pro, but, oh, no. uh, which was, which was in my backpack. But luckily it was inside a case. And since it just saved me a few thousand dollars, I figured I'd better pick it. It's the book Viper case and book is B-O-O-Q or something. It's one of those weird startup names, but it's kind of like a hard shelled, neoprene fiber-ish case. I don't know. It's, it's pretty tough and had, did a great job of saving my, my laptop from being crushed to death. And I've had it for about two years. So it's, it's held up pretty well. I really Is it like stiff? It. Yeah, it's stiff. The yeah. pictures don't make it look stiff. It looks almost like a fabric. They have some fabric ones and this one looks like it's fabric, but it's got some material inside of it that it's kind of like a shell, not just a sleeve, I guess. Maybe I said the wrong one, but I'll post the right one in the show notes. 
Why didn't you uh, pick your MacBook Pro for saving your back? <laughs> um, you know, maybe that was it. Maybe it saved my back. I like skidded across the concrete on my back. So it, I was really glad I had a case. <laughs> Did you stop traffic? No, it was on the sidewalk. I did get laughed at though. So, is your is your Retina MacBook Pro yours or works? It's works, but that would have been a sad thing to have to come and tell them. <laughs> uh, it was the best possible way to get in a bike accident though, because like I didn't really get hurt that bad, so I kind of like flipped around and like jumped up on my feet and just like stared around, breathing really heavily. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I almost died. But uh, my next pick is a man. A man named Jordan Santel. Um, he's at Jay Santel on Twitter. And he has created a thing called dancer.js. It's a JavaScript library for doing audio visualizations. So you can like make the screen pulse to the beat of a, of a song that's playing or something like that. It's really cool. Um, and he's also doing some contract work for ITV helping us, um, with some stuff. And he's been amazing at it. So if you are interested in, audio visualization or if you need help on backbone or node stuff um he's your man those are my picks awesome now if we need help with backbone or node stuff why can't we just go to you well if i have been incapacitated in a bicycle accident then you <laughs> good point oh man all right joe what are your picks all right so uh my first pick since it's beginning halloween season is the book Red Harvest. Uh, it's a Star Wars novel set in the older public uh, time period, and it's like a zombie novel. So I just barely started it, really excited to read it. I read the same author's previous book, Death Troopers, which was set during the uh, uh, time frame of the original se- series of movies where uh, in this one, it was Han-, Han Solo was actually in the book, and there were still zombies. That one was cool, so I'm really excited for this next book to read it during this Halloween time. That's my first pick. And then I'll also pick um, the Nitro Circus movie. I know it's not in theaters anymore, uh, unless maybe it's in dollar theaters. But I saw that a few weeks ago, right before it went out of the theaters, and that was awesome. Especially the part where the dude who's in a wheelchair does uh, like a 40-foot jump with a flip and lands it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that that was pretty awesome. And all the crazy stunts that they do. That was a sweet show. And then for my last pick, since it's a new TV season time, all the new TV shows are uh, out on TV. I'm going to pick an old TV show. You can pick up on, watch on uh, uh, Netflix, uh, Arrested Development, the best comedy to ever have been on television. And those are my picks. Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to go next. My first pick is Flux, and that's F dot L-U-X. And um, it's, a, it's a program that goes on your computer, and basically what it does is, and, and David Brady gave such a better explanation on Ruby Rogues, but I've been using it for a couple of days, and I, I love it. Anyway, so when the sun goes down, um, it changes the colors and... Dar- uh, the brightness on your computer so that it's more of a, a, an evening dusky kind of deal instead of the bright blues and and regular shine on your computer and 
um, when your body sees or when your eyes see the 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 blue light and the the kind of the daylight colors, then it it causes you to be awake. And when when it dims it and changes the colors to kind of warmer colors, then it it's more of a signal that you can go to sleep. And so it was really nice for a couple of reasons. One was that it dimmed my monitors just enough to make it so that I could sit in front of it and and work on my computer without killing or wearing out my eyes um, last night. And then the other thing that was nice about it was that I, I didn't have that, you know, that wild awake feeling that I, I have a lot of times when I work on my computer late and uh, I could just go to bed and lay down and go to sleep. So anyway, that that's my pick. I, I don't have any other picks. I usually have at least two, but I, I just don't this week. So we'll let Benjamin share his picks. Yep. So I've got two picks. The first one um, is a static slide generator for a node that I've been involved in for a long time. Um, so it, ex- it extends Express um, and will give you com- compilation of your copy script and things like that, as well as support for the different templating engines. And you can accomplish things like blogs really well in it as well as other stuff. So it's a pretty cool um, static site generate slash web framework for Express. That's well worth checking out if you're trying to do blogging and things like that or getting into building web apps with um, Express. And that's called DocPad. Now, the second pick is an author called Paulo Coelho. Um, he's Brazilian and he's written things called like The Alchemist, which is really popular. And I've just found like these books to just be amazing they they've really um kind of shed a new light on like just things that happen in life um as well as you know what could god be and things like that like which is is quite interesting he like he brings it to you in like a not a religious way at all and the way he presents his um lessons are quite appealing so well worth checking out that guy he's really cool all right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Do you guys have any announcements that you want to share? Nope. Fresh out. Okay. I, I have um, one really fast that I want to share. I'm going to be doing a webinar on November 14th, I believe. Um, it's going to be an introduction to CoffeeScript. So if you've been wanting to learn CoffeeScript, then go ahead and sign up. It's at intro to coffeescript.eventbrite.com. And uh, I'll have a shorter URL sometime, but if you if you want to make sure you get a spot, then then go there and sign up. And uh, I, I guess we're done, so we'll just wrap up the show. Thanks for listening. We'll catch y'all next week. Thanks, thanks for coming, Benjamin. Yeah, thanks. I want to see. You.